Talk Money is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. <coughs> For updates, further breakdowns, and past episodes of this podcast, sign up at thetalkmoney.com. If you enjoy our podcast, help us get the word out. Write a review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to help us reach more ears. And now you can sign up for our newsletter, where we curate the best money topics of the week from across the internet. It's quick, informative, and most importantly, fun. Sign up at thetalkmoney.com slash newsletter. Hey everyone, Mesh here. Today we're talking about the best time of our lives. The year is when we were young, beautiful, and free. When endless opportunities stretched out before us. We're talking about college. I'm getting the champagne. I'm calling the Talbot. Oh, make sure it gloat over that dim-witted son of theirs who couldn't even get into brown. She's going to Yale. She's going to Yale. <laughs> and that's the beauty of college. You can say whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. We gotta do something. Absolutely. You know what we gotta do? Toga party. You guys up for a toga party? Toga! Toga! Ah, yeah, I think they like the idea, who? Toga! 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 College is supposed to be fun, challenging, a time of discovery. But lately, it's been sounding a little different. On today's episode, we're learning about how virtual classes affect the quality of education, what students are missing out on while they stay safe, and whether college is even worth it in the first place. Let's get started. Well, school's changed a lot since the pandemic has started. This is Owen Moss. He's a senior at a magnet school in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's also my little cousin. Like a lot of American teenagers, Owen stopped going to school last spring. Since then, he's been learning online from home. Just about all the work is done through the computer. We have a normal schedule. My teachers have tried to emulate it so that it feels like we're in a classroom. But I'll say that the online format, Zoom discussions, Google Meet chat rooms, it doesn't really measure up to the feeling of being in a physical classroom. By now, you might be familiar with the issues that come with virtual learning. Teachers can't offer the same level of personalized attention to students that need it. Students can't ask a question without disrupting the lesson and attracting the attention of the wall of tiles that is their classmates. And besides classes, the whole social ecosystem of high school has been wiped out. And we also don't have uh, any clubs. You know, a big thing at any high school are the activities and athletics. We don't have any of that. Clubs have moved online. Some work well, some do not. Owen might be the rarity in that he really liked his high school. He misses the little things more than anything else. You know, talking to someone in the hallway or jumping on the elevator with a teacher, which we're not supposed to do, or answering the phones or writing on a chalkboard or having a debate or, you know, going to sports practice or field trips. Certainly, talk about taking something for granted. I never think of that as, you know, what I love about high school. But it definitely is the, the little things like that. Before the pandemic, Owen ran cross-country. It's just another thing that's been put on pause though he's hopeful they can officially start up again soon. In the meantime, he's trying to prepare for college, despite not knowing what it'll look like. So before the pandemic, I planned to go to college, and I still do. In most years, actually, 100% of my graduating class goes to college. And I imagine that'll still be the case. But 
the the application process has certainly changed, partly because of the fact that we are mostly going to school online, but also because of the fact that people haven't been able to take standardized tests or people have lost clubs or activities that they might put on their resume, or some people may even be missing grades for last semester. The college application process is historically intense and cumbersome and long. In a year when so much is different, it's had to change to adapt. I'll say that on the part of colleges, they've done pretty well to be lenient. The big thing is the SAT, which I was lucky enough to take last September. But I know students who still have not taken it. And it's, you know, you can keep registering for it and registering for it. And then they keep canceling certain days or they've been closing test locations. As a result, a lot of colleges, from Ivies to state schools, have gone test optional. 1,600 to be exact. For students who've been through the rigmarole of standardized testing, this comes as welcome news, regardless of the reason. In my opinion, the SAT is overhyped. People spend, I think, a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of stress worrying about the one test. So in a way, you know, it looks like the test is on its way out, and it was even before the pandemic. But on the other hand, I think what's going to keep it alive is the fact that students still think that they need to have the SAT. And, and I guess I did, too, because I took it um, despite the pandemic. While Owen works towards his unknown future, plenty of college freshmen are already living within this new environment. Many of them had the unique experience of getting accepted to their dream schools last spring, just to learn that it wouldn't look anything like the brochure. My name is Maria Zafar. I'm 18 years old, and I am a freshman at the University of Virginia. Maria grew up in suburban Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., She watched with stars in her eyes as her older sister, Atia, went off to the University of Virginia, 90 miles from home. Compared to her strict household, college seemed like a dream, a beacon of independence. I always went to visit, go to football games, go to the dining halls, and I just had the opportunity to explore and fall in love with UVA at an early age. Last year, Maria was finally accepted to UVA, which also happens to be my alma mater. She has big plans for the future. I am hoping to double major in commerce and foreign affairs. Oh, that's awesome. I was also a foreign affairs major. Oh, were you really? That's so cool. So you can always feel free to have an uh, open door to whatever resources I can provide you with. That would be awesome. She's also clearly got networking all figured out. Like any freshman, Maria was nervous about leaving home and starting over in a new town filled with strangers. But because it's 2020, that wasn't her main concern. All throughout high school, all that had kept me going was that in a few short years or in a few short months, I'll finally be at UVA and be able to start my life and have fun and just get over the stress of high school. But it was very worrying to wait so long to hear UVA make a decision as to whether or not the fall semester would be completely online or if an in-person option would be available. And I remember there were some days where I just got really anxious, and I remember I went to my mom crying a little bit because I was so upset that my college experience was being ruined because of the pandemic. After a long, uneasy summer, UVA decided that they'd go ahead and open the campus. And I just got excited all over again, like I first got my acceptance that this was actually happening, that I actually was going to go to UVA. To keep everyone safe, UVA made changes. A lot of changes. One of the rewards and challenges of going to college is learning to take care of yourself. But being on a college campus during a pandemic gives whole new meaning to living on your own. 
UVA first and foremost said that in-person classes would be available, but a very limited few, and that if you did have an in-person class, you would have to wear a mask and everyone would have to sit six feet apart. The dining halls also have a 50% capacity, and student life in general is just very, very quiet nowadays. There are very few people you see on the street because people are usually in their dorms taking their virtual classes. It used to be so full of life and happiness and laughter, and now it's just like a ghost town almost. Maria estimates that just over half the actual student body is on campus. A lot of kids were kept home by either their parents or their own health concerns. You can't blame UVA for being careful. A college campus is like a petri dish for regular viruses, let alone deadly, airborne, newly discovered ones. But it certainly doesn't feel like the warm, messy, communal drum circle you expect when you finally leave home for the first time. It's hard to play flip cup when it's a danger to share dishware. So we've all been assigned our own stall, sink, and shower. So I've been assigned, I think, stall number three, sink number H, and then shower X. And then UVA is also testing the wastewater from every dorm and seeing if there are signs of COVID infection in the water. So I actually received an email yesterday that my dorm building water had signs of COVID. And so we all were tested today for COVID. Routine COVID tests are the least disruptive part of the 2020 social scene. College usually begins with spending time in the dorm rooms of people you've just met. But dorms are notoriously cramped, and they're not exactly known for great ventilation. You can't socially distance when you're all sitting on one bed. To be honest, it has been very difficult to make friends because we're not allowed to visit anyone else's dorm building. And there are only supposed to be five people in a room. So yourself, your roommate, and then three guests. But everyone has to wear masks. If you feel weird talking to your friends and family wearing a mask, imagine trying to get to know someone for the first time without ever seeing the bottom half of their face. Luckily, social media has stepped in. It's not only a supplement to college life, it's the only way to learn who your peers are. Before the semester began, Maria found the UVA Instagram page for the class of 2024. And everyone would send in their picture and like a little bio and introduce themselves to the class. So making like internet friends is mostly how I've made connections here. I've also made connections with my neighbors in my hall, but that's about it. (laughs) I feel like I hang out with like the same seven friends every day. Even though her circle is smaller, Maria says she feels closer to her friends than she probably would if she was meeting new people and going to parties every weekend. College is still full of opportunity, but the glaring difference between expectation and reality sometimes hits her hard. Oh my goodness. I just, I remember my sister's move-in day. I remember her moving in and then everyone having their doors open and then all the girls going around, knocking on doors, introducing themselves. Uh, I remember the greeters and people helping the students move in. But when I moved in, well, first of all, it was two weeks late. And because of the pandemic, everyone moved in on different days staggered. And everyone had a two-hour appointment window and only two guests were allowed with the student to come into the building. So I have a big family, but only my dad and my sister came to help me move in. And so there were no greeters, and so I actually moved in three days before my roommate. 
There were no doors open. There was no way for me to knock on everyone's door, just say hi and introduce myself. And I wouldn't be able to go into their room and I wouldn't be able to properly like make those relationships that I saw my sister make on her first day on campus. Socializing aside, the main event of college is supposed to be the academics. Between mass classes in person and virtual classes from your dorm, nothing about learning is business as usual for students or for teachers. I have several friends who actually teach in universities because it's just such a different experience. They're actually spending double the amount of time they used to to prepare for class, even classes they've taught three, four, five, six years in a row. This is Kara Phillips, the vice president of creative at Common Bond. Common Bond is a financial technology company that's mission is to help make paying for school more affordable, more transparent, and just a better experience for people. Kara spent years helping people figure out their path to higher education. Lately, she's been hearing firsthand from teachers about the difficulty of getting through to students when you can't get near them. So, you know, if it's in class, a lot of teachers can have like a no cell phone policy or things like that. But, you know, it's a lot harder online to be like, are they even on, like, are they on their phone? Are they on Instagram or, or like TikTok? Are they, God knows what else is going on. So I think they can't really tell, like, is this student here? Am I reaching them? Are they understanding the material? So I think a lot of the things that make them good teachers, they've just had to find new ways to do those things. Even when teachers are doing their best, every student learns differently. And teaching online presents a particular challenge when it comes to the wide range of subjects they have to cover. My science and math classes have been the hardest to translate into this virtual setting, ironically, because for English or social studies, you can get a lot across online. But the thing that is still missing is a true chalkboard. It's very hard to visualize what's going on in a math class, and we can't do a science lab online. So there's definitely something lost as long as we're doing school on Zoom. At UVA and a lot of other colleges, teachers have some flexibility about how they want to present their lessons. Some classes are synchronous. So they meet at the same time and students actually have to log on at the same time and listen to the professor's lecture. Or they can pre-record their lectures and offer them as asynchronous courses and then students would have to watch it on their own time. So for my three asynchronous classes, it's been very difficult for me to like make time or actually find time to watch the lectures. You're always thinking, oh, I can do it tomorrow, I can do it later, I can do it whenever I want. But with synchronous lectures, it forces you to watch it at this one time, and the professor also takes attendance. Clearly, the old incentives for attending class are still in effect. But so much of this new way of learning relies on having a solid work ethic, which can be tricky in the years when most people are still developing one. Online learning might force students to become self-motivated and extremely organized. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. Google Classroom is definitely the main thing that has become sort of the bulletin board. And that's where we get assignments. That's where we post our work to be submitted. That's where we can have recordings of lectures or links to different activities. Some classes use Google Meet, which is like Zoom, but I think it's worse. And then my friends and I, we use group text. Some people use Snapchat. It feels like our whole lives are on uh, just different platforms at this point. Professors are working really hard to try to figure out how to provide a good education this way. But I don't think any of them are particularly happy about it either. Teachers, of course, are a big part of education. But so are discussions and debates, and networking with your classmates, and coming up with ideas over cheap pizza and watery beer. 
Considering the astronomical cost of college, is it worth it to pay full price for less than half the experience? Would it be better to save your money and find another path to adulthood? Oh, for sure. And I also assume, sorry, my puppy just found her squeaky toy. <laughs> this is Dale. My name is Dale Stevens, and I'm an executive coach. Dale is living his best quarantine life. We reached him at his new house in his new city of Portland, Oregon, with his new puppy. You might be wondering, what does an executive coach do? For me, it means working with founders and executives at Series A through Series B companies who typically start with a specific work-related issue and need a thought partner to help them understand what might be holding them back and ultimately what the path forward is. Dale is used to helping people find their way. His unconventional background has made him perfectly suited for it. We'll get to that. When it comes to virtual learning, Dale's thought a lot about how students' economic status and home life now play a large role in how they learn. Yeah, different kids are living in very different realities, right? If you're a kid whose family has a summer house, that's where you are. But if you're a kid whose parent is an essential worker, you're probably now teaching your younger sibling. And I think one of the challenges of the pandemic is that it's going to exacerbate an already stark inequality difference in this country. With all different kinds of situations at home seeping into students' college lives, parents and kids are questioning the value of the education itself without all the bells and whistles. Kara's heard friends and colleagues alike wonder what they're paying for. One of them, for instance, his daughter is at a very expensive, you know, sort of baby IV, and the tuition is close to $80,000 a year. And frankly, first thing out of his mouth was, I'm not paying $80,000 a year for online learning. I'm paying for the experience of my daughter being there, for the enrichment she's getting being around a place of learning, the library, the social connections, being around other students, you know, all the things that come with college that are more than just classes. And I think that there are probably a lot of parents out there who are for the first time maybe questioning how much they're paying. You know, if you take all that away, it's really just your kids sitting home on a computer for a couple hours a day, having someone talk at them. For kids who are already enrolled in college before they knew the extent of the situation, it feels like a bit of a bait and switch. They've paid for tuition. They've paid for room and board. Is it possible it's still worth it? Not at all. <laughs> I do not think I'm getting my money's worth at all. My situation personally, like I was fortunate enough to receive a very generous financial aid package. So I'm definitely paying much less to be a student here and other people are. I especially feel for the out-of-state kids because they're paying 40k to just stay in their room all day and attend online classes. UVA and a lot of other schools have seen the drastic change in what they have to offer, but that doesn't mean they want to take a financial hit. So the people who are staying home don't have to be housing and dining, but that's it. This tuition's still the same. Everything else is still the same. There's a long-standing debate about the cost of college and whether it's actually reflective of what you get. A degree is valuable but not as valuable as the connections you make, the skills you develop, the person you become when you're in charge of yourself for the first time. I think the pandemic has shown the ridiculousness of college pricing. And I also think as long as school is online, the thing with that is it really takes away a lot of the differences that arguably you are paying for in those tens of thousands of dollars. And that's maybe the difference between a private school and a state school. I don't think most people really choose a college just because of the quality of education. Because I, I really think that you can get a great education at 
many, many places. But people pick colleges, and that's that whole hyped-up college search. It's because of the experience. Uh, And as long as college is online, that experience is very muted. More people than ever are reconsidering what used to feel like a requirement. But some have been asking this question since long before the pandemic sidelined the traditional campus experience. I think what was most surprising to me was the extent to which college was just about doing the work. I was used to figuring out what I was going to learn, doing the work, and then figuring out how to assess what I was doing as well. And so suddenly someone else was doing two of those pieces and I just had to do the work. And it both felt incredibly easy and like I wasn't actually doing the most valuable part of learning. At the age of 18, Dale did what lots of students did. He went to college, Hendricks College, in Arkansas, to be exact. One of the things that was important to me in going to college was going somewhere very different, and that's part of why I ended up applying to schools in the Midwest and South, which would be very different as the gay liberal coming from California, um, which certainly proved to be true. Dale became a college freshman after an unusual childhood, which he spent educating himself in lieu of regular school. I grew up in a small farm town in Central California, a town I grew up in had much more of a Friday Night Lights, football is king vibe. And it wasn't a place where learning was valued. And moving or going to a private school weren't financial options for my family. So I spent my middle school and high school years teaching myself. Dale eventually decided to give traditional academia a try. But halfway through his first year of college, he was growing restless. He'd spent six years in the driver's seat of his own education, and riding shotgun felt passive and tedious. That same year, the tech billionaire Peter Thiel launched his Thiel Fellowship. It awarded $100,000 to a carefully chosen group of 24 kids who decided to drop out of college and pursue their own projects. Dale was one of them. And in fact, by the time I had said yes, I had already dropped out of college and moved back to San Francisco. It was pretty clear that college was not going to be the place for me. Since his time in the first class of Teal Fellows in 2011, Dale has gone on to found a company and move into his current career as an executive coach. Even though he didn't find the confines of a campus particularly stimulating, he supports the independence that it can foster. I do think that spending time in a separate location with people who can help you understand that your experience of the world is not the only experience of the world is really important. Do I think that needs to happen on a college campus? Not necessarily. But I do think that that's a a core part of the growing up experience. If I could wave a magic wand, I think I would send every 18-year-old to therapy and to live in a different environment than where they grew up in. Mike Wang felt the same way after college. He's a senior director of strategy at Arizona State University. And before that, he worked at the Minerva Project, a modern academic organization that rethinks what a four-year university should look like. But before that... He was a student at Georgetown. I am the son of two Chinese immigrants, so I was the first in my family to go to a four-year university in the U.S. So as with most immigrant families, college was definitely something that was new. My parents didn't know all the, as DJ Khaled might say, keys, keys, keys to all of the nuances of what is it to get to success, but they valued education. Mike went to college because it's what you're supposed to do after high school. His parents wanted the best for him. But as a first-generation American, he was navigating unknown territory. I depended on a lot of mentorship from people in upperclassmen years to help me, to guide me through it. Because my parents were just kind of like, you know, we've done, and rightly so, our part. Like, go off and do your best. 
And so I think that notion of how to be successful is is a skill. And we don't talk about that actually enough as like a learning outcome in broader education. We just say, go to college, right? Get a great job. Mike went through the motions and graduated from Georgetown in 2007. He got a great job shortly after, working for his alma mater. But when he heard about the Minerva Project, he admired their non-traditional approach to education and joined them to help design the student experience. So there's many different ideas and projects within the umbrella of it. Minerva Schools was designed to be a four-year global university. And the intention was to say, you know, if Harvard or Stanford were built today, what would it look like, feel like, sound like? The basic idea of Minerva is to provide a four-year education that's grounded in the real world, with real-world challenges. It removes you from the comfort of a campus and forces you to think not only about what you're doing, but why you're doing it. We reimagined the campus. So we said, rather than building libraries and gymnasiums and student centers, we said, what if the world was their campus? What if we could bring students across seven cities over four years? And the students, yes, they'll have a residence hall to live in, but not pay for all the other stuff that is to run a campus and just utilize the city as a campus. And the intention of that is to say, there's so much out there. Why spend four years in New Haven, Connecticut? Here's how it looks. Freshman year, you live in San Francisco. Sophomore year, you move to either Seoul, South Korea, or Hyderabad, India. After that, it's Berlin or Buenos Aires, followed by London or Taipei. Many college students spend a semester or a year abroad, but this is next-level globetrotting. A program like Minerva's could be an amazing experience for people like Dale, who want to feel like they're carving out their own path to adulthood. But Mike admits that a lot of people would do better with the structure and security of a conventional campus. Colleges should not be for everyone. Minerva is not for everyone. If you are a student who may want a little bit more infrastructure in your learning ecosystem, maybe you can even afford it, then we would say don't come to Minerva. Minerva is a leaner ecosystem that we're providing. We're looking for people who are a little more independent. You know, figuring out how to make your own food when you're in Hyderabad is not as easy as stepping into the cafeteria. Because Minerva cuts out the on-campus amenities and real estate of regular college, they're able to charge a lot less. They were using virtual learning long before the pandemic. And as a result, their tuition hovers around $15,000 a year. One of the big contributors to the cost of the typical American college is how much importance they place on expansion. New buildings, new sports facilities, everything new to compete with the countless other options. Kara says, one of the best examples of this is Cooper Union, the venerated art school in Lower Manhattan. Several years ago, Cooper Union finally had to start charging tuition, and it was this incredible institution. It was like one of the only free educations in the United States. It was a fantastic art school, and, you know, the board of trustees there made a lot of really poor decisions, primarily around hiring star architects and spending a lot of money on really expensive buildings in New York. And I think those are sort of the cautionary tales where people look at universities and be like, who's running these places? They're just like spending all this money and now I'm taking on all this debt so they can, you know, there's a fancy building. As Kara points out, college administrators aren't the only ones to blame. Students get to enjoy those fancy buildings and often look down on campuses that aren't keeping up. And you could argue that parents largely drove some of this by, you know, visiting the universities and being like, well, my child's not staying in this dorm. This isn't nice enough. 
Dale's personal experience at college made him want to challenge these norms. When he dropped out, he used the Teal Fellowship to start his first company, called UnCollege. Its mission statement was to challenge the assumption that going to college is the only path to success. They eventually started running pre-college gap year programs to help students grow before they committed to the huge expense of a university. Dale sold on college after nearly six years. In that time, he learned a lot about what he got right and what he got wrong. The first assumption I made that was incorrect was that college for the general public wasn't working. When you're designing systems for the public, you are designing for the average. And that means that by definition, it's not going to work for the outliers. Things are going to not always work for me, but that's my responsibility. I assumed that the world should bend to my will, which is a very cis white male thing to do, and certainly a a early 20s male thing to do. And the second thing that I assumed was that what needed to be redesigned was the residential 18 through 22-year-old four-year academic college experience which is what we think of when we think about college. And the reality is is that the vast majority of college students are mid-30s working single mothers who are going to college part-time. And that's been true for the last decade or so. What Dale overlooked is something that's often left out when we think about what a college student looks like. Higher education is much more than an Ivy-covered campus and a four-year experience for young adults. It can be an important step in growing up, but that can happen at any age, anywhere. You know, one of the things that I feel like there's been a bit of a movement, but it's been really hard to change attitudes, is lifting the shame around community college. And I say that with no disrespect to anyone who's attended community college, but I know from the sort of upper middle class high school I attended, you know, community college was not anything anybody wanted. And certainly parents would be, you know, mortified their child went to community college. But when I attended Sarah Lawrence, I found out, you know, they're very generous with the number of credits you can transfer in. And there were other students there who were taking a lot of the more basic kind of requirement classes at community college over the summer. And I thought, wow, like that would have been a smart idea because I'm still paying off my student loans from undergrad. There are great teachers and great classes at community colleges. You can get that foundational education without sinking yourself into debt. There isn't one clear path to success. Whether you follow the prescribed wisdom all the way to a university or choose to try something new, you can still fail. And that might teach you the greatest lessons of all. I think what I wish someone had said to me was, hey, here's the upside of this, but here's the downside. And the downside that everyone pointed out was, oh, you'll never be able to get a job and yada, 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 which turned out to not be true. The actual downside was that the growth and development that you typically do between 18 and 22 gets put on hold. And that felt fun and empowering at the time, and I got to have all these experiences that my peers didn't have. I ended up growing up in a very different way, and I have a different set of experiences than the average 29-year-old does. And it's neither good nor bad, but it shapes who I am and it shapes who I interact with. And it meant that by the time I ended up leaving the company that I started at 25, 26, I realized, wow, like I actually don't have a good idea of who I am. And I don't have a good idea of self-worth and don't really know what resilience is. And I hadn't really had to do anything hard. Had I had some different people around me, I think I could have preempted some of that. But there's trade-offs to every experience.
A fact that we can't ignore is that traditional college is mind-blowingly expensive. The cost of college has increased almost eight times faster than wages since the 1980s. As a result, student loan debt has plagued two generations of students. You might be familiar with the benign-sounding but ruthless Sally May. Private student loans are huge, but Sally Mae is by far the, the largest. Billions and billions of dollars in private student loans every year. One thing that's interesting about Sally Mae is we've had this experience sometimes with talking to customers. They actually think Sally Mae is owned by the government or part of the government and feel like more safe with it because they think it's related to the government when it's completely a private company. There are plenty of lenders because plenty of people can't afford college without help. Discover, Citizens Bank, Wells Fargo, the list goes on. And that doesn't even compare to the amount of student debt held by the federal government. Regardless of where the loans come from, they're not solving the problem of college pricing. A lot of quote-unquote solutions to education problems are really addressing problems that are much more tied to things like poverty and really should be addressed through policy, not through private business. Universities are not just educational utopias. They're businesses with profits and losses and expectations to meet. If students opt out or refuse to hand over six figures for a degree, a lot of schools aren't equipped to survive. You know, certainly big schools with huge endowments or that are highly competitive that people want to go to, like Stanford, Harvard, those schools will all be just fine. But, you know, there's a chance in 2022, 23, you know, 10 or 15% of the universities in the United States may not be here anymore. The Stanfords and Harvards of the world are protected, not just because of their prestige, but because a huge portion of their business doesn't come from students. We sometimes forget that um, American universities is where a lot of our scientific breakthroughs come from, medical breakthroughs. So there's a lot of money that those universities have from endowments and government programs for research. I read a quote that said Harvard's endowment was bigger than like the GDP of like some small countries. <laughs> and besides research grants, elite institutions have a massive alumni base to draw from financially. These universities have been around a long time. They have had the ability and the privilege of really getting kind of all the spoils, and that's allowed them to build up war chests. Kara points to her own alma mater, Sarah Lawrence, as an example of how generational wealth, gender, and tradition all swirled together to boost the institutions that probably need it least. What I used to hear from faculty members and administrators was that part of the reason Sarah Lawrence was so expensive is that women who had gone to school there like in the 40s or 50s, even 60s, who might have been passing away and, you know, endowing the university or leaving money, all like traditionally left money to their husband's universities. So, you know, even if they survived their husband, the husband wrote the will and the money was going to his college. That's a significant amount of money being distributed elsewhere. Women started going to college in mass in the mid-1800s, but gender roles took a long time to catch up with that progress. In a 1928 edition of Vassar College's newspaper, the Vassar Quarterly, an alumna wrote in to express her displeasure. Widows with large fortunes, which they have often had a share in making, are much more apt to remember the colleges of their husbands and sons than to give to their own colleges. And what of the daughters of the nation? Are they to be forgotten? Someplace like Sarah Lawrence is really well equipped to have in-person classes. They don't do the big lecture classes. They focus on small groups for learning, but it's actually on the list of universities that might not survive. 
Colleges can make money in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's through big sports teams with national television contracts. Sometimes it's through research grants or real estate. They also have to spend a lot of money too because they're not just schools. I never thought of university as a billion dollar company. You know, like, oh, there's some people who will do gardening and like, you know, someone opens up the, the gym and then there's professors, right? I ended up reading, you know, the very open financial statements of the university and you realize, wow, it's an education business, yes, but it's also a sports business. It's an investment business. It's a real estate business. It's a restaurant business. It's a housing business. It's all of these businesses, a conglomerate, if you will, all within one. To put it lightly, business is not booming. Kara has seen a stark decline in the number of students applying for the FAFSA. Which is this government forum that basically parents complete with their kids to find out how much government aid they can get. The amount of people who've been filling it out has dropped significantly. January, February were sort of normal. And then as of March, like people have just stopped filling it out. That data alone is a pretty strong indicator that families are putting off college for a year. Or indefinitely. One thing that's come out of the pandemic stronger than ever is the promise of the gap year. I had never considered a gap year before. I always sort of knew that I was going to graduate high school and then go to college. But it is absolutely something I'm considering now. Gap years have existed for centuries, even if they weren't called that until the 1960s. Beginning in the 17th century, rich young men in Europe took what was called the Grand Tour. The goal was to expose noblemen to art and culture across Europe as they were coming of age. It was primarily a British tradition, and TV shows in the UK have continued to be fascinated by the routes taken by what they call the Grand Tourists. This is the very road on which Grand Tourists traveled the 50 miles from Bologna to Florence in the 18th century. It winds through the Apennine Mountains. The popularity of the Grand Tour died out as it got easier to travel around Europe by rail. Nobles loved their exclusivity. But in America, it morphed into what we now know as the Gap Year in the 60s. Companies started marketing Gap Year programs to baby boomers, and it mostly entailed volunteer work and personal development in other countries. Gap Years have been popular around the world ever since. So it's the idea that you sort of like let someone practice sort of being an adult before they start college. And it's about exposing yourself to new experiences, going new places, being challenged. So maybe working, maybe traveling, um, all things that aren't going to be possible um, in this gap year. While we're still at the mercy of the pandemic, the benefits of the gap year are diminished, just like the college experience. Owen's thinking about a gap year just because the alternative seems like a waste. You're paying for college. And to me, you know, I'm lucky enough to be able to take a gap year because to me, to pay tens of thousands of dollars to essentially sit in your bedroom, you know, I can get the same education that I would from online college for a buck fifty in late fees at the public library. Maybe he's right. But a lot of students are going ahead with learning virtually until it's safe again. Owen has friends who deferred for a year. But he also knows a few who decide to create their own miniature version of a campus. I go to school in Philadelphia, and every year, as high as 35% of my graduating class will go to the same school, the University of Pennsylvania. And Penn right now is almost exclusively online classes. But I know a lot of my friends have actually taken out an apartment in West Philadelphia near the Penn campus. They're not technically living on campus because the school's not really open, but they're living with other Penn students. There's that sort of medium where... People are leaving, but they're not necessarily at school. 
For now, a makeshift attempt at communal living will have to be enough. Things will likely improve over time as we learn to live with the risk of COVID. But it's not going to be an easy journey. And it'll probably take years to get somewhere resembling normalcy. That's a hard pill to swallow for kids who are in college right now. What college experiences are you still hoping to have in your next four years? What will you be most disappointed if it doesn't happen for you, if you miss it? I mean, everything, to be honest, because all throughout high school, I was very sheltered, I guess you could say. I barely hung out with friends and just stayed home when everyone else like went out to eat or went out to parties. And I just stayed home studying because I told myself that you're going to have fun in college. And now that I'm in college, (laughs) I'm having less fun than I did in high school. I personally doubt that I'll ever get a full college experience. I'm a pessimist myself, so I'm telling myself that like, oh, this will be the next four years for me. I won't be able to get a graduation because I didn't get a high school graduation either. I won't be able to hang out with more than five friends at a time. I'll have to wear a mask everywhere for the next four years. I'll never be able to experience in-person classes. I won't be able to go to football games. I won't be able to do any of the stuff that my sister got to do. And I always heard the stories she tell me about how fun college is. And I'm just sitting here like, I'm never going to experience that. Hopefully things will be very different by this time next year. But it's understandable that kids like Maria and Owen are rethinking their young adulthoods. They're adjusting their expectations of what their first grasps of independence will look like. The class of 2020 lost their graduation in the last half of their senior year, which is awful. But the thing is, they had already applied to college. They knew where they were going, by and large, before the pandemic started. It's difficult because none of us really know if college will even be in person next year. There's definitely a lot of uncertainty. And I I guess that's what all of this is. It's just we're all still learning to live with that uncertainty, whether it's regarding school or life or whatever it may be. Kara sees this uncertainty as an opportunity. The pandemic has exposed longstanding problems with higher education. Perhaps more students will shirk traditional four-year college and reconsider how they want to earn a degree. Maybe there will be changing attitudes and more effort and you know respect given to different types of education. I think the tech online education and design online education, there's a lot of vocational schools for like UX and UI design. And that kind of stuff can be done online very easily. And ideally, there'll be more and more options that are affordable. How long it takes to get there, I think, is really a question of how long parents continue to believe that higher education is the path, because ultimately they're the consumer and can control the checkbook. Education will always be valuable. Maybe it'll look different in a few years. Hopefully it'll be cheaper. What we do know is that virtual learning can only provide one piece of the college experience and is probably the part that matters least. College is a space for building a network. College is a space for falling in love and falling out of love. College is a space to build your own confidence. College is a space for like getting rejected in your first interview and also maybe getting your first interview into a job. College is a space for having conflict with a best friend and college is a space for learning how to cook. College is a formational moment of life because you're able to be together on this space. For now, students have to wait and see. Applying for college is an arduous and sometimes mysterious process, but nothing compares to the uncertainty that comes with the pandemic. 
I'm gonna miss the, the big things. It's possible that I won't have a prom or I may not graduate in person. You know, everyone says after five or 10 years, no one really remembers or it doesn't matter. But you know, in the moment, I'd really like to graduate. It's easy to miss those big landmark things, you know, that have been so ingrained into Americana. Owen would love to end high school with the classic rites of passage. In all likelihood, there won't be any Remember the Titans-level football games to close out the year. He won't get a John Hughes prom. He'd probably even settle for a Carrie revenge plot. But there were too many people in that gym. And when it comes to graduation, any big final speeches will be filtered through the unforgiving lens of Zoom. Because this part's over. And that's so sad. It was great, wasn't it? (laughs) Congratulations. Kids are making the most of this golden time in their lives, even if it's been tarnished. Owen loves running cross country. And even though clubs are halted and school is online and track meets are gone for who knows how long, he's safely taking steps towards the future, even if he has to start slow. We haven't been allowed to practice since March, but my cross country team, without the coach and unofficially, we've been running. Uh, We meet up about every other day after school and, and we just run. Thank you to Owen Moss, Maria Zafar, Kara Phillips, Dale Stevens, and Mike Wang for sharing your stories with us. Now you can become a Talk Money member. Sign up at thetalkmoney.com membership to get access to our exclusive guides, including a guide to student debt, and hear full interviews from all our episodes this season. That link again is thetalkmoney.com membership. This episode was written and produced by Olivia Briley. Our mix engineer is Valentino Rivera, with additional help from Eduardo Perez. This episode featured music by Blue Dot Sessions. We appreciate you sharing this with your friends, and of course, subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. Until next time.